Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Hey guys, this is Keenan Thompson. I have a problem with you. Yes, you. None of y'all told me that AutoTrader has millions of new and used cars that I can shop from home. I thought we were friends. I put smiles on your face, but I'm not smiling. No one told me that with AutoTrader, a dealer can deliver cars to my home or that I could shop by price on AutoTrader. No one. Consider this friendship that you just learned we had officially over. Finally, it's easy. AutoTrader. Hello and welcome to another Spotify Green Room chat, Wagon Wheel. Depending on where you are listening to it, we are live uh, in the Green Room app at the moment, unless you're, of course, listening to this on the podcast like days later. And therefore, you will not think that we are live. You will think that we are not live. You'll think that it's just a normal podcast and all of this speech will have been for nothing. Huge thanks uh, to everyone at Patreon for our big supporters. That allows us to do the second show in a week. Big thanks to everyone who pops into the Spotify Green Room and everywhere else. It's obviously, I am recording this within, what, about an hour and a half of New Zealand pulling out of their series against Pakistan. So I'm assuming there will be some questions on that. Obviously, we don't know that much at the moment. Uh, which is a bit awkward, but that is, uh, you know, how things work. <laughs> but I'm sure there'll be some questions about that. We'll talk about that in a, a little bit. My first thoughts, I suppose, just for anyone just coming onto the chat now, is the sadness of it. Uh, I've got no if if the New Zealand players or the New Zealand board um, didn't feel safe. Uh, that is terrible and unfortunate. But the sadness, of course, is are we going back to what Pakistan had to do before? There's been a lot of Pakistan Twitter going crazy about this, but I saw some really interesting conversations too between Pakistani fans talking about if the teams need a presidential-style safety commitment, is it a safe place to tour? I hadn't really thought about it that way. I've been more thinking about it. Is is it safe? Is it not safe? But that's a really interesting thing to talk about as well. But I just think it's sad for Pakistan cricket, which is, you know, anyone who loves cricket, I would assume loves Pakistan cricket because, you know, they've been a spectacularly entertaining side. I think part of the reason that I am someone who writes on global cricket is because of Pakistan. Well, actually, almost, you know, they're almost the most important reason why I started writing and following global cricket was, you know, watching uh, Abdul Qadir, Mushtaq Ahmed, Intamam al Haq, Wazam Akram, and just being like, that's not like Australian cricket. And this looks fantastic and wonderful. 
Imran Khan and all these different players. And obviously that bled over into, I suppose, Indian cricket next. And then, uh, you know, learning about uh, more about the West Indies and um, uh, eventually, you know, Sri Lanka. And now, you know, being interested in Nepalese crickets and the Brazilian women's team and all these sorts of things. So a lot of that comes from Pakistan for me. So this hopefully is not meaning that Pakistan is going back to where they were. Although, as um, I think Usman Sami Adin put it very well on Twitter earlier, um, remember that Pakistan did do incredible things uh, in cricket, even when they were uh, isolated and couldn't play at home. But uh, yeah, I, I suppose I just wanted to start there. I, I figured there will be some questions. If you have any uh, questions, pl- please feel free um, to answer them. Um, oh, we do have, uh, uh, actually, I have a couple of sponsors, but uh, one will come uh, uh, in the future. We haven't quite um, signed a deal with them yet. But we do have um, a T-shirt sponsor. So if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, I've been given a bunch of free T-shirts by uh, Bodyline um, T-shirts, who, um, weirdly, I'm pretty sure I've bought T-shirts from back in the day. <laughs> um, this particular one is a Curtly Ambrose one, which means I now own two Curtly Ambrose T-shirts. Uh, there's something for everyone there. Um, uh, they've got some really cool uh, T-shirt designs on there if you want to have a look. Um, uh, the, the the guys seem really nice, um, and I, I really do like their T-shirts. There's a few companies doing sort of cooler cricket T-shirts, and I do mean cooler, like as in, you know, compared to the ones that you sometimes see out there. Um, and uh, they're certainly uh, doing some really good work over there. So if you're interested, um, they've got a bunch of different ones. Uh, my particular favorite is that they've got a skull uh, and with crossbones, but the crossbones is a cricket stump and a cricket bat, which I just, I really like that. Um, just go to our Patreon. Remember, you can support us on Patreon. There's all different levels, all different things. You can get private chats with me uh, all the way through to just getting um, uh, some of the podcasts come through um, uh, quicker and earlier and eventually ad-free as well. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, you can support us on Patreon if you like the podcast. Uh, you know, the more support we get on Patreon, eventually we'll, you know, might be able to go to three episodes a week and we'll be able to put more money into the video production um, and all sorts of things. You also get access to some of my um, uh, writing that only goes to paid subscribers and all those sorts of things. So you head over to Patreon. Uh, Richard August um, has asked a question. He says, we've seen amazing bowlers and some spicy pitches. But defensive batting techniques in the men's game seems to have declined markedly. Are we likely to see them improved or is just now how cricket, uh, especially test cricket, is now? See, I don't think defensive batting techniques have um, got worse. In fact, I think in some ways it's really interesting. I think there's, there's another question I think about this, but I almost think that there's a different kind of um, – technique that is happening i think players are changing their techniques more often now and i think they have to uh because of uh analysis and because of tv and because of the cameras we have and because of people like me and because of guys like flighted leggy on 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 online and cricket with ash on on twitter um you know they're putting out these videos and and players are now certainly seeing uh you know bowlers and um, opposition teams are seeing all these things so I think players are probably changing their techniques more often. I don't think defensive techniques are necessarily poorer. I think, in fact, if you look at strike rates, strike rates have come down over the last five or ten years in Test cricket. I think players are really trying to play de- quite defensively, just that the bowling has changed. And I think that perhaps that is something that um, that we need to understand and the bowling has got slightly better. This is a bowling era, especially seam bowling era. But no, I don't specifically go with the defensive techniques um, and no longer work angle. But I understand what you're saying there, Richard. Will Cooling says, um, 
uh, he's got a question about Anderson, and he and he was talking about Anderson. Uh, I made a video about Anderson and the second innings and struggling a little bit in the second innings. And he's wondering if that's because they could spot his tricks that he doesn't rely on raw speed um, to get people out. Um, I think that with that particularly, I, I think that um, uh, you know what you have with Anderson is that. Uh, we are looking for reasons why he might be doing that. I think as a general rule, what happens is that long series generally help um, seamers more than I think almost any other cricketer. Now, they get tired and uh, they don't like to play a lot and back-to-back test series are dreadful. But I remember talking to a lot of younger batters uh, who came into the game and they all said their biggest adjustment to the game they found test cricket easier than first-class cricket in many ways. The facilities were better. The coaches were better. The pitches were better. Um, uh, all these different things that we don't think about, but for them, they were like, great, everyone's looking after all my little needs. I don't have to worry about what tube to get to the you know, ground on time or where to park my car or all those sorts of things. Everything's looked up after for me. All I have to do is go out there and bat. The thing that they found really hard was, getting to the second or third test and realizing that the really smart fastballer that they were going up against had already bowled to them a lot and as was starting to work them out. So I remember Eddie Cowan being really clear to me and saying, you know, that he could almost see in Zahir Khan's eyes that Zahir Khan had worked out where to bowl to him. And he was just like, that just doesn't happen in first-class cricket because, you know, you might play a guy, but uh, maybe twice in a month, you don't really play them in black back-to-back first-class games in this way. Even if you do play them twice in a season, which, you know, in a lot of first-class seasons can happen, they're usually stretched apart. The bowler can't remember everyone, whatever. Test cricket, it's like he's got two, three, four, five test matches to go up against you. So generally, Will, I wouldn't have thought that would be a problem, but it's a a really good question. Gopanath Ravi Chandran says, the Lindbergh episodes made me watch Moneyball. Uh, The movie was extraordinary. I can't stop making parallels between baseball and cricket in terms of how conservative um, they are. Um, His question is, is Moneyball for all all teams in some capacity? Which club team, in your opinion, does more Moneyball than most? Uh, I mean, it's so prevalent now, uh, Gopinath, to be honest. It's um, it's something right across the game. Uh, You know, I wouldn't say every particular team in the world does it, but I think every particular team in the world looks at it and is interested by it. Um, I did a really good, uh, must have been a written piece, a written interview with uh, Nathan Lehman a while back. And, you know, we, we, you know, both of us obviously believe in numbers and we believe in analysis and all these sorts of things. But one thing that we both are very, very honest about is that cricket pitchers don't care about Moneyball. And that makes the baseball a little bit different than uh, than cricket is. Look, I think it's a, um, I think it's a, it's certainly something that's going to get more involved with cricket. We're going to get more information. We're going to get better information that things are going to change. But yeah, I think at the moment it's it's quite clearly out there. Um, I think the Indian Test team. I, I think India, as far as international teams, almost and England seem to be the ones who are most swept up by it. Um, I think in other places you see very strong analysts at times who maybe uh, have an outsized view. Obviously, there's a, quite a few T20 teams that are, you know, Islamabad United, Perth Scorchers back in the day, um, North Ants, uh, quite a few of the IPL teams very much involved in it. But it, it's a really, really interesting world. Uh, Avinash says, um, uh, one interesting you point you made about the, in the Jimmy Anderson video, and go have a look at that after this, obviously, if you haven't seen it. It's about Jimmy Anderson being old um, and funny 
thing. Jimmy Essen's career is so fun because he's played so many test matches that there's just so many things to look at. Um, but uh, does it? Uh, one of the things I talk about in the video is how he was looked after. Uh, does it differ from a batter to a bowler? Um, as science in cricket makes progress, do we see players built for a certain format or three format players uh, with extra long career become the norm? Um, I, I, when it comes to looking after, I certainly think that bowlers are going to get more immediate impact uh, with that because bowlers don't have as long careers as batters. So as sports science comes in, as we work out how to use them correctly, diets, fitness, all those sorts of things come in, I think it should help bowlers. I think m most of the new things that have come into cricket over the last, what, 25, 30 years, really since, I don't know, Krishna Tunga was involved with uh, the Australian cricket team, Almost everything I think has benefited bowlers more than batters, uh, which doesn't, which won't always look like that if you're watching white ball cricket. But even in white ball cricket, I think there's there's been real benefits to bowlers from sports science, whether from all the way from the money ball stuff that Gopinath was talking about before, all the way through to um, you know fitness and everything, and the treatment of Jimmy Anderson, how we've managed to keep Jimmy Anderson on the field bowling at the rates that he is at his age. Um. So I certainly think that happens, but I think that batters won't bowl as much in the nets anymore. We've already, yeah, I think we talked about this last week. You know, part-timers won't bowl as much, so you might not as get as many back injuries. I think we'll start to understand back injuries a little bit better with batters. I don't think that's anything – I don't think that's ever been studied, but my guess is that at a certain period uh, in your career when you face, you know, 100,000 balls, there must be something about the crouching over position of batters that can cause problems. Uh, eyes are huge. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, God, I always forget her name. Let me just check this because I don't want to get it wrong because she's lovely and brilliant. Uh, uh, Dr. Sherelle uh, Sh uh, Calder from South Africa. Um, I've interviewed her and done some work with her before. She um, tracks uh, batters and how they use their eyes. Uh, hers is almost stage one, I think, of you know, looking after players' eyes, you know, there's that great Ross Taylor um, story about him having an eye problem and not knowing um, and struggling a little bit with the bat, although not quite, um, when you look at the batting average, it doesn't quite uh, work out as much as the, the magical story does. But certainly, I think there are things we can help with batters. But so far, I think most of the sort of more sports science stuff, um, Avinash has helped the bowlers. As far as, as far as when cricket and science progress, and I suppose as cricket progresses, from a financial point of view, I think you're going to get more Harry Kearney um, type players um, who will be specialists in one particular part of one particular game. But I also think that for whatever reason, cricket has maybe encouraged all-rounders more and has that space for all-rounders more than baseball, uh, which is you know um, something that we've talked about before. Um, and so that even if you push that to all format players, I think that as long as possible, teams will try and get them. If, if you have a Ben Stokes or a Ravi Jadeja, Joss, uh, well, even, I could say Joss Butler, or Virat Kohli, Kane Williamson, any of these sorts of players, Mitchell Stark, you're gonna, and, you're, and you're running Australian cricket, you're going to want to use them in many ways as possible. Once it becomes franchise-dependent, that might change. But until it's franchise-dependent, I still think teams are going to want to use their best talent in as many different ways as possible it's getting harder though um and it'd be really interesting to see what happens going forward so you might get uh you might get um certain uh, situations but i think that we are probably learning more as sport not just cricket and how to keep players active um uh, for longer um and those with the access to money and personal trainers and 
dietitians and everything will be able to do that. Uh, I think the numbers in tennis are stark. When you have a look at it, the top players are getting older and the players coming through are not getting older. Um, and that's because the top players are staying on the park and I, well, on the court in their case. And I would assume a similar thing will happen in cricket. Akuma says, um, he has a question about techniques and skills. Um, he's seen some conversations on Twitter uh, about techniques and batters uh, when, when they go out and uh, scoring droughts and, and how all these things um, go and if they have the right technique. Do you think the search for the right technique is weeding out players with unusual twitches, techniques, and making everyone more similar? Wow. God, Kumar, step into my, into my office. I think two of the most extraordinary cricketers we've ever had are Jeff Thompson and Don Bradman. Uh, Jeff Thompson was massively quicker than anyone else in his era. I don't think we've ever had another bowler that much quicker than all the other fastest bowlers of his era. And Don Bradman was massively better batter than anyone else in his era. Again, I don't think we've ever played that much better than anyone else in their particular era. Perhaps WG Grace um, is the only other one. And he invented batting technique. Uh, so that sort of comes back here. Neither Bradman or Jeff Thompson's techniques are taught. Even to this day, no one has taught them. I would say Steve Smith. I know, I know that he, Bradman used to talk about how um, uh, Sachin Tendulkar looked like him. I think if you saw Steve Smith, there would be even more so. Um, there would be a much bigger comparison, I think, uh, between the way that the two of them bat and the way that they go about um, their game. Yeah, and as I say, no one actually follows that kind of batting, uh, uh, you know, as we go at the moment. Now, um, a lot of that comes down to the MCC coaching manual, which was a hugely important thing in cricket for a very long time. Elbow up, side on bowling actions, all the things that, you know, a lot of our coaches still tell us at the, at the lower levels. That, I think, has had a bigger impact than people on Twitter dissecting videos and techniques of players. I think what you're seeing on those videos goes back to, I think it was Richard's question, which is players are now tweaking things more often because people are seeing things more in their game. Uh, you know, before you would hear, oh, he's got a problem with the ball outside off stump. Oh, he's got a problem with the short ball. Now it's like, oh, he's got a problem with the short ball when it is bowled from this speed and this kind of bowler and it is exactly aimed at this area of his body. That's completely different. And so people, are, I think batters are changing techniques. I don't think we're necessarily seeing a... Uh, if you just go on the big four and you can throw Baba Azam in this, if you go on the big five, Baba Azam and Virat Kohli have very similar techniques. Joe Root has one on his own. Steve Smith has one on his own. Kane Williamson has one on his own. None of them are, you know, uh, none of those last three are traditional batting techniques. They're more sort of modern batting, batting techniques. I say Virat Kohli and Baba Azam are probably a bit more traditional. Um, and they're making runs. Um, I think we're seeing new ways to make runs um, everywhere. I mean, I'm not sure you can you can watch England play cricket and say that techniques are all becoming the same without idiosyncratic methods when the you know, Dom Sibley can't hit to the offside and Rory Burns is looking over his shoulder like he's about to get stabbed by someone chasing him. Uh, so I, I do understand what you're saying, um, but I don't I don't think that is the case. Um, uh, uh, it'd, be, it'd be really interesting. I, I think we'll probably see more and more, especially because of T20 cricket, more and more random bowling actions and random batting styles as people learn how to make runs in different ways. Um, but it'd be really interesting to follow that. Uh, Christopher Hart says, uh, 
are the US doing the right thing with their minor league cricket and trying to develop themselves as a cricket nation? My first thought, those, it's too big with 2014, so I was wondering if they're trying to maximize opportunities before narrowing it down. No, I, Christopher, I think they're doing a great job with that. Uh, uh, we've done a podcast with Peter Della Pena. We have, you know, me and Peter are very skeptical of it. In fact, I've talked to some of the major league cricket people as well. E- everyone knows that this is pushing it and everyone hopes it goes very well. But essentially, yeah, it's, uh, I, think in, I think that's a great thing. I th- they really need to build up a very good culture of a lot of different mini cricket cultures. And I think the minor league cricket can do that. They also, they don't know who their best cricketers are outside of maybe the top 20 or 25. I think that's what they need to start learning. Um, also, I think it's something that American cricket fans kind of understand. You know, uh, if, if you well, American sporting fans understand. So I think it works from that point of view. It might be harder for them to go minor league, major league, national team um, in the short term, but in the long term, I could see how this can really work for them. And I think it's a better plan than having twelve or fourteen minor league teams and then picking your eight from there. I think you want to. We, I think what America want to see at the moment is just how many good cricketers they have out there and how they can develop them the other really important thing and then get them into the ma- and then get the ones into the major leagues so that they can develop even further going once major league cricket 2023s when they're hoping to have it um up and running so um it's really really interesting what they're trying to do uh in prices um <laughs> uh, jim Cumbers cropped up uh uh in a conversation this week by accident someone who combined professional football and cricket um he certainly did uh a very good cricketer in England, there are other famous examples with Dennis Compton. I know football and cricket probably won't be common outside of England as a combination, but what are the overseas equivalents and who should we have heard of combining another pro sport with cricket? Um, uh, okay, so Aussie Rules Football is the famous one in Australia. Um, Simon O'Donnell, Shane Warne, Jamie Siddons, Max Walker all played professional Aussie Rules Football at, at the top level. Keith Miller. Um, there's a lot of uh, Australian uh, cricketers Um and uh, shield cricketers who did both, and a lot of very good Aussie rules footballers who chose football over cricket. Um, Alex Keith, I suppose, being the most recent who chose cricket over football, didn't quite make it as a Victorian player and went back to play professional Aussie rules football. That's a huge crossover one. Um, Aussie rules football was partly invented uh, as a, as a sort of as a sport. Um, uh, to, to give cricketers uh, fitness in the winter, I think. I think that's right, unless I've just made that up. I think that's right. <laughs> um, so it's, it's a really, really, uh, there, there's always been a crossover. Obviously, cricket and, football, and Aussie rules football played on the same grounds um, as well. Uh, as far as professional um, uh, crossover, uh, Susie Bates, obviously, is a basketball of uh, New Zealand. Elise Perry um, played uh, football for, uh, and that's uh, soccer. Um, or you know, English football, 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 not Aussie rules football. Um, uh, in there, there's a few um, professional women, or at least one I can think of, and I forget her name. Um, is it Jess? Jessie? God, how can I forget her name? She plays um, cricket and football professionally, uh, Australian rules football uh, professionally in Australia. Um, so there's a few more women. I think it's very, getting very hard to do it in cricket now. Um, New Zealand have had um, players who've represented the national team in football and cricket. That's off uh, off the top of my head. Um, I'm trying to think of any others. Um, South Africa, obviously, is more a schoolboy thing, and I think generally it doesn't happen as much. But I think going back in the day, there was definitely a lot of crossover in the early South African sport because they had a lower talent pool because they were just, you know, using uh, white uh, white people, which was part of the reason. Um, but there was certainly, you know, uh, I think there was a lot of crossover there. West Indies, we've had 
I cannot remember the guy's name, who went off to try his luck in professional baseball um, and who has come back. It doesn't seem to be as big a thing in Asia, but I've got a feeling there's been some hockey and squash crossover. Might have even been some squash crossover in Australia as well. Although whether you would say that those were professional um, sports is, uh, you know, I'm not sure if squash was professional at that time. Um, So, yeah, that's off the top of my head, but I'm sure um, that now I've said this, there'll be a million tweets to me um, and and comments on the YouTube uh, about this. But, yeah, there, there certainly has been... Um, some great crossover. I'm trying. I must be missing someone really, really obvious. I think Keith Mill is one of the most famous because he was a professional jockey, professional Aussie rules footballer, and a professional cricketer. Um, so he's certainly up there. Him and Compton. I think that was part of the reason that they they were f- not friends, but they were both incredibly naturally gifted athletes, and that maybe that drew them um, to each other. Um, yeah, there's. I think there's quite a few New Zealanders, and I feel like I can't remember any of them off the top of my head at the moment. But, yeah, there's certainly a lot. Um, uh, Aussie rules football and and soccer certainly were the two that really, really, for whatever reason, um, uh, crossed over a lot at the beginning of cricket. Um, or, sorry, at the beginning of those two sports, really. Um, but really, really, really interesting one there. Um, Rumnath says, um, I've been reading that the Namibian cricket team has become better over the last couple of years under LB Morkel as part of their coaching staff. They've beaten a South African emerging side in an ODI series and bowled out the Titans with the Proteus players for 43. Do you see them as a favourite to go past the qualifying rounds and beating one of the bigger teams in next month's World Cup? Yeah, I I mean, I was with Scotland when we lost to Namibia and we had South African coaches who knew the Namibian team quite well, knew the coaching staff, obviously. I think everyone at that tournament was shocked at how well they had done. They are... I might even be writing something on this coming up, but they are one of the most disciplined cricket teams I've ever seen. Like, I get the feeling if their coach says, we're only bowling wide Yorkers today, they'll bowl 120 wide Yorkers. I think if you look at them on individual talent, you might go, you might struggle to to think that they're an incredible cricket team in the way that perhaps the Scottish team or um, even the Oman team, uh, you know, some of the other associate teams, you you go, or UAE, um, when they had all their players, um, you know, you sort of look at some of those teams and you go, there's a lot of individual talent here um, and they make a good team. Whereas Namibia, you almost go, it's just, they just played like a unit. They, they really do. Um, I don't know if they'll go to the next round uh, because I wonder if as brilliant as their, their method is, I wonder how much it translates to the higher level of T20 cricket. But I hope it does because it's fascinating to watch a team almost, you know, move in a robotic way. Uh, they're brilliant. Um, you know, them and Papua New Guinea, I can't wait for teams, to, uh, you know, fans to see uh, more of them. I think they're both such interesting teams. And, um, yeah, I, I'm really fascinated to see how they, uh, how they go. I don't know um, is, is my best answer. But what I would say is this, really interesting. I would have always said that for a lot of those teams, you really needed to build yourself up domestically in a stronger league, the way that I suppose Zimbabwe once did, um, and really get stronger that way before coming to the top levels of international cricket. But we've seen Scotland, Ireland, Netherlands, now Namibia, all do really, really well over the last couple of years, kind of on their own. Now, there's been a lot more cricket, and they obviously need more support and more money and all these sorts of things. But I actually now wonder if 
been left outside of the county cricket setup or the South African cricket setup might not actually work better. That said, I still think Papua New Guinea should probably play in 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 the Sheffield Shield um, or have a big bash team or something like that. I think that would be really handy. But I I could see the opposite now, and Namibia might be a perfect example of that. Once they were left on their own, they had to sort their house out, and I suppose it goes one way or the other. You either completely fall apart or you get really good. They got really good. Uh, so thank you to everyone on Patreon uh, for all those questions. Let me get to the whoa, the many questions of everyone's hands. Is it Baska? Are you there? Yes, I'm there. Yeah. Beautiful. What's your question? Yeah. So I I was just wondering about the T20 leagues in that Europe about pinch hitters. So what I feel is that in T20s the risk reward ratio for having a pinch hitter is much higher because you actually never use your eat more than seven to eight wickets in a T20. So a guy like Mitchell Stark or Umesh Yadav or uh, these people who we have seen hitting. Sixes in Test cricket, I see no team actually using uh, a pinch hitter regularly that much. I know Sunil Narayan has done it a bit, and Graham Swanwood used to do it for Nottinghamshire, but as Sam Curran did it for this IPL. But given that the risk reward uh, ratio, and if somebody can come and hit uh, ten uh, runs for in five balls, wouldn't it be much better? Given that we have got Manish Pandey, Virat Kohli, Shashank, and a players who kind of take time to build up. So. Why are not teams using the pinch hitters kind of players right now? This is a really good question. And I've talked about this a lot, but I've never written a piece. I'm going to write a piece based on what you've just asked. I think there's a really strong reason. And I think that the, I remember uh, when he was coaching Mumbai, Ricky Ponting using Mitch McLennigan as a pinch hitter occasionally. And I was commentating with maybe Derek Pringle. Um, uh, and we were talking about it. And Derek Pringle was saying that he he couldn't a bit like you he, almost exactly what you were saying. We don't you don't lose that many wickets. You can throw someone up and see how they go. I think there's a really specific reason why teams don't throw the guys who bat eight to eleven up the order, and it's because they're incredibly limited. And what happens is if you if you have planned for them at all and you send out someone who's like your number eight or your number nine generally there's a reason why they're a number eight or a number nine and they maybe they're great at hitting off spin and you send them in uh, uh to, to face an over and off spin but the first ball they miss hit it and it goes for a single and then they can't get back on strike and the next over the captain just goes okay what is this bloke not like and you bowl that for a couple of overs next thing you know you've got seven or eight dot balls as this person swings wildly the running between wickets drops generally because a lot of those guys are not very good at running between wickets and i think that happened a lot uh, in the between, I'm going to say between t- 2008 and 2000 and maybe 12, 13, I reckon I saw that a lot. Pinch hitters go in and I thought, oh, this could be a really interesting tactic and it didn't work. The guys who work are generally um, guys like David Willey, uh, guys like Sunil Narain, um, who don't put a high price on their wicket and put a lot of contact on the ball. So there's a big difference between Umesh Yadav, who can hit sixes, and Sanal Narayan and David Willey, who can get a lot of contact on the ball. And they're going to consistently hit the ball, which means that there's still a chance at turning the strike rate over. They're not just doing what uh, Ben Hilfenhaus or Umesh Yadav does. So Ben Hilfenhaus and Umesh Yadav, big shoulders, you know, big, strong guys. We know they're going to whack the ball if they hit it. But what if it takes them six balls to hit the ball? Right, so now you have a guy who's hit one six, but it's taken him six balls. If you had a top order player in, he would now have, he'd be he might be six off six as well, and he'd have his eye in, and he could he could have a go. I think that is the reason. I think teams tried it a lot, and it didn't work. What I think we'll see in in the future is 
We see a lot of one-dimensional hitters between 8 and 11, right? So Sun or Narayan is slightly different. David Willey is slightly different. But you see a lot of guys who are very good at hitting either seam bowling or spin. And it's usually one kind of spin, and it's usually right arm seam bowling. None of them can hit left arm seam bowling half the time, right? I think what you might see in the nets is, okay, we've got a guy here who we know is never going to be a top-order player, but we know he can whack sixes. Um, Odie and Smith is a really good example of this. Odie and Smith, I worked with him at St. Lucia, and the first day I saw him play in the nets, uh, you know, he, came, he turned up to the nets and he bowled as fast as anyone in world cricket at that time. And then he went into the nets and he started whacking every, every right arm seam for six. But at that time, and I haven't seen him bat a lot since, he couldn't hit anything else, right? And so my thought was, okay, we know he can whack right arm seam. We don't even need him to face right arm seam in the nets. Every time he goes to the nets, let's get him to face left arm finger spin when it turns away from him. Let's get him to face leg spin. Let's get him to face left armers. Let's see if he can face other things and train him up on on the other skills that he needs. I don't think that kind of thinking has gone into the pinch hitting. I think what happens is someone whacks a couple in the nets and people go, let's get him in there. Um, also, I worked for Melbourne Stars, and the year before I worked for Melbourne Stars, I think, or maybe two years before I did, John Hastings would go in, and they would send John Hastings up the order. Again, another big guy could hit sixes, um, and they would send him up the order uh, only when an off-spinner was facing, and occasionally it came off absolutely brilliant, but it was really micro-targeted. If, if there was three or four balls left in the over and an off-spinner had taken a wicket, they'd send John Hastings in to basically and say, you've got four balls. All we want you to do in those four balls is try and hit four sixes. And I think it worked maybe once or twice for him. I think he might have done it once in county cricket as well. As a general rule, John Hastings wasn't able to do that consistently, but he was an absolute brilliant hitter of offspin. We might get more micro-targeting like that, but the problem is when the guy gets to the other end, if he's not a clever cricketer and he doesn't have more rounded batting skills, he can actually slow your innings down rather than uh, speed it up, which is the opposite of what you want. Okay. No worries. That's a great question. I really enjoyed that one. Thank you. And I will write a piece on it. Actually, I'm going to take a screenshot of your face so that I can I can do that because I would never um, remember anyone's names. I only remember cricketers' names. Generally, just cr- people who played cricket for Victoria in the 90s. Oh, I got my man on whose name I always pronounce incorrectly. Kalsa? No, no, no. It does right. Okay. Hey, finally. All right. What's your question, mate? Okay. My question is... Uh... I want to talk about two injustice happening in this cruel cricket world, you know? Okay. Please okay. tell me why Kamran Akmal is getting all the name and fame for being the very best wicketkeeper in the history of cricket. Uh, Mushrik has got a big edge in terms of being the best keeper. Even his in his prime, he had got 32% drop rate. Sorry, sorry. Did you just say... Sorry, did you... Sorry, let me just stop you for a minute. Did you just say that Kamran Akmal is getting... The fame for being the best wicketkeeper in cricket. Look, oh, that is sarcastic. Oh, okay, okay. No, I think I think both of them. I think um, Cameron Akmal. I all the last one, last one. That, that uh, I read. My question was: uh, It is that you know why this drop rate measurement uh, is not introduced in the broadcasting media? Because you know I had uh, read a piece on ESPN Quick Info. You know, written by Charles Davis. Okay, mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. showed that drop rate of wicket keepers, but most of the time we don't see in this. You know, who, who is the best wicket keeper? We can judge from that drop rate. You know, average drop drop rate. Yeah, yeah. So average drop rate. Why not we oh, oh. use this okay. measurement? 
Okay, here's, here's the first thing you need to know. Average drop rate doesn't tell you what you think it tells you. Secondly, Charles Davis is one of the few people actually looking this stuff up. Crickviz and Charles Davis are the only two people I know with, with those sorts of stats. I'm sure there are a few other analysts out there that have them over the last couple of years. Um, but Charles Davis has gone back through, I think, every Crick Info score uh, commentary thing to look for drop catches. And, um, and Crickviz, obviously, over the last few years have been marking them down as well. But when you look at drop rate, I promise you, every single time an Asian wicketkeeper will be near the top. Why do you think that is? No, really, no. That I really was that you know piece. Uh, there were only Mushfiqurim had got thirty two percent drop rate, and yep. Kamran Akmal had got twenty percent. Adnan Akmal had got twenty two percent, and Ames yep. Dhoni maybe had got eleven percent. So there were not too many you know Asian wicket keepers. Maybe Dhoni had got worst as a wicket keeper. 17% drop rate against spinners. Other than that, there were no, you know, spin, Asian spin, Asian wicket keepers there. Yeah. Well, no, there are Asian wicket keepers on every time of those lists because I've seen Crickviz put those lists up time and time again. Asian wicket keepers always have a higher drop rate than uh, Western wicket keepers as a general rule. And that's because they're standing up to the stumps more. That's why drop rate is not an efficient stat. You would have to look at the percentage of balls that each wicket, or the percentage of uh, balls and the percentage of um, drops and chances that each wicketkeeper gets um, up at the stumps before you even start to um, evaluate anything like this. And that's why drop rate is not particularly used because kind of everyone knows that it's not an efficient way of looking at it. Um, also, drop rate only counts for drop catches. One of the reasons that MS Dhoni doesn't have a high drop rate is because he didn't always go for balls. He would allow balls to go very close to him and not go for them. Um, you know, that was kind of a famous sort of, of all of his sort of wiki-keeping genius that he had, that was one of the most, you know, obvious flaws in his wiki-keeping standing back was that he wasn't a particularly good diver. Uh, for the ball. So again, drop rate, how does drop rate take that into example? One wicket keeper is dropping it because they're going for it. So maybe they take that catch 50% of the time and MS Dhoni doesn't go for that catch and it, and he, he doesn't drop it, uh, you know, ever because he's never gone for it. So it's a very, very crude metric. Um, that's why we don't use it. Um, you know, I, I think Cameron Ackwell is more famous, um, <laughs> you know, for many different reasons, if not anything, the Sydney Test match. Um, uh, you know, we and and also he's pl- probably had a very, very long and famed career, much more than most of the, uh, you know, Bangladeshi cr- cricketers. So he becomes the object of hu- hilarity. Also, Pakistani fans make fun of him more than Bangladeshi fans make fun of Mushrika, right? There's a, there's a you know, sometimes you've got to be part of the joke. Um, so I think there's lots of different reasons there. But uh, but yeah, I hope that helps. But Okay, no, what will be a good measurement for the wicket keepers, you know, because uh, we don't watch wicket keepers rating, you know, who is the best Wicketkeeper. I don't so I'm not saying about wicketkeeper Basel. Who is the best yep. wicketkeeper as far as ranking can be there? No, it's a really important of the game now. Or maybe in the history of cricket, it is also. It's always been important, definitely. What we have is no way of telling if wicketkeepers are good. Uh, I mean, you talked about looking at a piece on Crick Info. Go and have a look at my piece. I think it's called Point Fielders with Gloves On. Uh, we have absolutely no idea, which is why wicketkeeping standards have dropped, especially outside of Asia. I think they've probably dropped less in Asia as a general rule would be my guess, but uh, just because you need better wicketkeepers for spinners. But outside of Asia, where seam is dominant, I think wicketkeeping talent has dropped. 
the best way to do it would be to have a special tracking camera above every single ground, which would be able to tell you, you know, the percentage chance of what each um, uh, uh, chance would go for. So we could tell from the deviation of a bat uh, uh, from a keeper up at the stumps, what the likelihood of a wicket keeper taking that. So if one wicket keeper is taking it more often than not, and the other keeper is taking it less often than not, we'd start to get an idea of that. Um, also with buyers, you know, our wicket keepers letting buyers go through their legs, our wicket keepers letting buyers go when the ball is swinging late or when it's double bouncing and all those sorts of things, special tracking camera would help there. If we had a, it, it would go back to the MS Stoney point I had before. If there's an edge that goes sort of between wicket keeper and slip and we could know, that 60% of the time a wicket keeper goes for that. And of those 60% of the time, 30% of the time he takes that catch. Um, we would then be able to tell if MS, if my theory on MS Dhoni is apt and correct or not, or whether it's not. At the moment, we're all just going off our memories and our viewing, and it's not particularly easy. But a really, really interesting question there, or questions. Keshev. Hey there, can you hear me? Yes, I can. What's your question? Uh, yeah, I saw your uh, video regarding the boom, bro. Uh, it was really mm-hmm. interesting one. It made me realize off spinner only kind of uh, underutilizing uh, out of the wicket from the right handers. Like how uh, Mutha Murli Garan late in his career, he switched around the wicket to right handers and he got more LBW, if you can recall. Do you think uh, current off spinners like uh, R. Ashwin and uh, Nathan Lyon is underutilizing? I know Nathan Lyon is completely different from the feet, more of uh, outside off stump bowler. But uh, do you think R. Ashwin can definitely utilize that even in test circuit as well as uh, uh, shorter format? Look, they both already use it. Um, whether they use it enough is probably the better question. Um, I would assume that what happened with Murali was is he started doing it more when LBWs became a bigger deal. And if I'm an off spinner and I know that DRS is made it more likely that I'll get an LBW than before, I would be more likely to bowl around the wicket. There is, with Asian off spin, Asian off spin is very different to Western off spin if you look at the way that they bowl. So Western off spinners quite often come cl- a little bit closer to the stump, they get more drift away, and then they spin the ball uh, from out uh, from from a close angle close to the stumps, they drift the ball away and then try and spin it back into the stumps. Asian off spinners quite often come from wider of the wicket and they're trying to um, spin the ball in almost uh, on, on an arc. They don't get as much drift possibly because of the balls um, it, as well. But also they're used to playing on surfaces where they want to keep these stumps in play um, or at all times, whereas Western off spinners quite often are trying to get catches and slips and caught behind. With that in mind, both of them could use the round the wicket option at times, but I almost think that it, it probably depends on particular batters and their techniques. Because the ball is spinning in, that might actually help some batters turn you away and score off you more easily. But I think that, yes, I think, it's very possible over a period of a few years, what you might have is, I, I, mean, I think about it, I know we're talking about test off spin specifically, but I almost think about it the way that leg spinners now bowl in T20 cricket. So the best leg spinners basically bowl a ball that at all times can uh, has a chance of clipping the outside of off stump or the inside of leg stump. And by that I mean, if you straighten the ball just a little bit and you're pitching the ball on off stump, you have a chance of straightening and hitting the stumps. If you're bowling a wrong end from the angle that leg spinners bowl, there's a chance of it spinning and hitting the outside of leg stump, which means the stumps are always in play. Also means the inside edge is always in play and the outside edge is always in play. I think that right arm off spinners bowling around the wicket had that exact same ability. I think you can still keep slip in play. You keep LBW and bold in play. You also keep short leg maybe even more so in play at times. Um, 
what you do also is you put the bat and the pad closer together, uh, which I think is it may may help the batter. Do you know what I mean? The, the other two styles are coming over the wicket. Keep the ball outside your off stump for a longer period of time because you're either coming wide on the cricket wicket, as I said, or you're coming close and then drifting it away, which means the bat is away from the pad. That would be my only concern with that. But as someone who very occasionally bowls off spin when he's bored, um, I always bowl around the wicket and always have and certainly believe it is the better style. So great question and thank you very much for that. Fahan. Hello. Yes. My question was about actually with Pakistan cricket, but today is not, I think, the good day to ask that. But still, I'll ask it, uh, mix it up. Uh, you actually look at the domestic structure, so you will see that Pakistan have only six tips, right? And they, they did it for a reason that so their competitive talent will talk. But what I have noticed for some time, actually, they're finding it difficult to find an off-spinner from their domestic structure. And mm-hmm. the same problem I see in India also, which has like millions of tips, still, they're, they're finding it difficult to find off-spinners. So, is this a sign that spin bowling is get, taking the back seat now, even in the subcontinent where it found it, its real home, actually, you can say? I mean, you say India is struggling. They do have our Ashwin. You're right. Well, I am talking about the, the, the domestic, in the domestic. Oh, in domestic. Of the run, uh-uh. there are not eggs. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you're right. The seamers did very well. I mean, that was also, don't forget, in India, they made a... They made a move towards they made a move towards seam bowling on their pitches, which would limit spinners. Probably with the thought that really good spinners would still come through the system. Pakistan used Duke's balls in domestic cricket. Am I remember, remembering that right? Is that they used? No, they, they used something different ball. Uh, it was named forgetting the name actually. But was it the ball? I remember someone telling me this. I can't. I can't, I can't remember if I looked it up or someone just um, uh, let me know. But the balls are swinging for longer in Pakistan domestic cricket as well and they uh, there was a feeling that there was seam bowlers there um we have had at the international level there is absolutely no doubt that um seam is dominating spin at the moment so spin is after a couple of years of spin doing really really well um seam has taken over i think there's probably a few different factors to that i think that uh it helps if you're a seam bowler analysis really helps whereas if you're a spinner there isn't as much analysis as we can give you um, I also believe that, um, uh, you know, things like the wobble ball have completely changed, uh, you know, cricket, especially at the top level, kind of uh, massively at the moment. So you can see why people are trying to get more seamers in. But I think probably the biggest change, if you really want to know why I think there's left finger spinners, especially off spinners around the world, I think is a combination of matchups because people don't want to bowl them to right-handers. And the other thing is that the 2014 crackdown on throwers. There is no, Beforehand, we had a lot of off-spinners around the world with illegal actions, semi-legal actions, occasionally illegal actions, what are, all different variants of that particular point. And we had the Dusra, which meant that you, off-spinners had a natural variation which made them more dangerous to right-handers. Since 2014, people have been, even in domestic cricket, not picking um, off-spinners as much because of kinks in actions and because of the lack of the Dusra. So I think we're seeing a natural correction correction from that, where I think for a couple of years, finger spinners were completely dominant in cricket. I mean, we talk about wrist spinners now, in, in especially in white ball cricket, being dominant. A couple of years ago, finger spinners were absolutely dominant and you wanted two finger spinners in your team if you could slip them in even if you know um johan boter and um roller van der merver were playing for south africa 
as two finger spinners in an era where they'd never even thought of spin before. You know what I mean? So um, I think that's how much things had changed. And I think we've probably, this has been a natural overcorrection to that. Plus, I do think that, I, I don't know about Pakistan as much because um, it seems a little bit more random their domestic system. But certainly in India, they went, you know what? We will, cre- we will keep creating spinners. What we really need to do now is make sure we create a lot of seam bowlers. And I think they changed their conditions to ensure that has happened. And to be fair to them, that did happen. And uh, if, if I can follow up, Saklin Mustak recently, he mentioned that ICC should change the rule about the restricts of spinner to bowl booster. So uh, what is your stand on that? No, they should not. I remember at, at the time when, when this was a big, there was a big question about this and um, Peter Miller, who now works for the CPL and uh, was a freelance journalist at that time, he was saying things along the lines of, the deucer is good for the game, so uh, we, should, we should allow for it. And because and he was talking about Saeed Ajmal and, and some of the really exciting bowls. And I was like, is Johan Bota good for the game? Who's basically bowling as a spoiler bowler and no one can hit him. I'm not sure that he is good for the game. And here's the other thing about the Dusra. If you can bowl it legally, I think it's an absolutely great ball. I'm not sure how many people will ever be able to do it. But how many players have ever been able to bowl the flipper at the professional level consistently? Like, literally, we had about 60 years when no one really nailed it, other than between, what, maybe Clary Grimmett and uh, uh, Abdul Qadir? Like, and even Abdul Qadir wasn't a, a brilliant flipper bowler. We basically have had a handful of people ever who could genuinely bowl the flipper. That doesn't make the flipper, you know, the flipper's an exciting cricket ball. It, you know, it acts in a different way. It's hard to play. Gets tail enders out. I, it would be great if every leg spinner could bowl it, right, and could bowl it well. They can't. Some things are supposed to be hard. Not everyone can bowl the knuckleball either. Not all bowlers can get their hands around it. So we shouldn't, I don't see any reason to do that. If we get to the point where there's no off spinners left in the game, I'm more than willing to have that conversation again. Uh, but it's the, it's the same chat you have over legalized ball, uh, reverse swing and ball tampering, right? I can, under, I can certainly understand the, the reason why some people would say that, but it's not for me. But uh, thank you very much for your questions. All right. Oh, who have I got? Have I got Path or have I got someone else? Amitayu. Beautiful. I have no idea how you're here, but talk to me. What's your question? So you were talking about the players who have played for two sports for their country. So I remember one player called Kota Ramaswamy played test match for India and tennis as well for India. So my question was, why does someone like Benny Abel doesn't get to play more league cricket other than T20 Blast and Hartfield or Melbourne Renegades, I think. But other than that, why doesn't he get more leagues. Yeah, he played a little bit of BPL. He played in the T20 league. Um, he played in the big bash leagues, so BBL, BPL, but not a lot. Look, um, I mean, this is one of my obsessions, anyone will know. When I first looked into Benny Howe, I couldn't understand why someone whose record was so good was being overlooked. And I realized that in English cricket, there was two things. They thought he had a bad attitude. Turns out he doesn't have a bad attitude. He has ADHD um, and he's... Um, uh, you know, seeks professional help to help that, but it does mean that his personality stands out. That actually held him back a lot. I don't think Benny realised how much it held him back until I wrote the piece where so many people brought it brought up his personality. Uh, and he was quite upset to hear um, that. That was a problem for a long time. That basically covers almost all the period up until 2017, 2018. The next one is, and I'm going to tell you a story about a coach I was working with a team and they asked me to help them um, 
uh, in their scouting uh, to find a player. And I said, you can get Benny Howell, he's available, and he's great. And this coach went, oh, the guy that bowls the rubbish medium pace. And I was like, well, he doesn't bowl rubbish medium pace. He bowls fast spin. Fun fact. Uh, really? And I said, doesn't really matter what he bowls. No one can hit him. And the guy said, oh, I just, mate, all my friends just tell me in county cricket, he, you know, takes wickets on, um, on shit, Gloucester pitches. And I was like, that doesn't sound right. So I went and looked up his record and he was as good at home as he was away. I went back to the coach. I said, nah, I think you're wrong here. Here's the stats. And he went, oh yeah, but you know, county cricket, most of the wickets are rubbish. So he's bowling on rubbish pitches. And I went, Okay. Well, he also played in the BPL and was on, ah, BPL's got rubbish pitches as well. Okay. So I went back and I looked up just what Benny Howell had done on test venue pitches. So I think we can all agree that they're of better quality than the average first-class pitch. And what happens is I think his average went up from like 18 to like 20 and his economy rate went up from like, I don't know, 6.8 to 7.1. So basically more or less the same. The rubbish pitches argument you could argue was there but geez he was an incredible player on and off these pitches i went back again to this uh, um uh this wasn't even one coach it was coaching structure of a, of a of a team said to them look i've done the research again this is what he's done and they just went he's not for us and i don't think many people in cricket ever did the research that i had done on him so i think what happened was that the bad the bad personality mixed with the, he's just a rubbish medium pacer and you only go out if you try and slog him on shit pitches it's just been a thing that has hung with him he does not hold up uh he's a phenomenal cricketer and what he really needs is a really i think he played uh, a handful of games the renegades a handful of games in, in in the bpl not even sure if he got on the field during the t10 i can't remember what he really needs is one league to just give him a season um, put him on the park, and my guess is he will provide absolutely astonishing numbers and it will change everyone's mind. The problem is now that, you know, he's getting on a bit in age. My worry is that by the time he gets picked, he won't be at his best anymore and everyone will everyone will think that this is the reason that he's like this. The good news is that Benny Howe isn't the only guy doing what he's doing. He's doing it to an absurd level. And for those who don't know, basically Benny Howe claims to have 45 slower balls. But when you drill down with Benny Howe, what he really means is he has six variations of the knuckleball. Actually, I think he has about 20 variations of the knuckleball. He has, he basically bowls fast off spin at times. Other times he bowls like fast um, arm balls. Uh, he bowls like wobble balls. He bowls almost every different kind of delivery possible for the particular situation that he thinks he needs. And then he bowls it very straight um, and he sets his field very straight. He makes you hit across the line. And of course, that's very hard to do if you can't pick his knuckleballs. That's very hard to do if you can't pick his faster ball. That's very hard to do because of the amount of revs he gets on his off spinner, on his leg spinner, on all these different deliveries. He's wronging. He's got like four different kinds of wronging. So some of them come off slow. Some of them come off fast. If you're playing across the line, you miss him. And if you're hitting straight, you've got to be mid off and mid on consistently. And he's backing uh, that he, you won't do that against him. It's a phenomenal player. And we're already seeing other guys come through the system a little bit like him. Pat Brown is maybe a faster version of him. Um, so we are seeing other players come through. I think we'll see more and more players like Benny Howe. Um, just a remarkable person. I, you know, I've had a lot to do with him. I really think he should have played a lot more leagues. Uh, and I don't think he's the only person with a off-kilter record um, uh, that doesn't, because he does it in a weird way, uh, doesn't get seen. But um, thank you very much for asking me about my pet project, um, Benny Howe.
Basil. Yeah, hi, Derek. Excellent. Um, how can I help you? Yeah, okay. Uh, I have a small question and a big question. I have asked the small question first. Should Liam Livingston open for Dadson Royals? Do you know what? I, I just haven't looked at his numbers enough to see where he, he's best suited. So I, I can't answer that for you, um, but he's a phenomenal talent. And uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing what he does in the IPL, actually. You know, I'm really looking forward to, again, uh, uh, you know, getting a long run and, and seeing what they do. I think we see a lot of these England players who are incredible in the blast and it doesn't always transform into the other leagues, uh, whereas I, th- I think with him he he should be one of those players. So can't wait to see what he does. Yeah, okay. And the next question is, should IPL increase their obviously score to from 4 to 5? I think if you're asking me from a cricket perspective, obviously it shouldn't even have international. It shouldn't even have um, limits on 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 things. It'd be great if we just had a league that was just like the NBA, or you know, uh, we just went whatever you want. If you think the best players are from India, you pick them. If you don't think the best players are from India, then you know, try and find a seven foot center from Serbia who can uh, do really good passes. Um, that's a very obscure reference to a lot of people listening here, but um, I think uh, from a commercial thing i think that i think it still matters in india that there are a lot of indian players coming through now i think i've said this before but it'd be really interesting to see in 10 or 20 years time if india keep developing the way they are in cricket and good people keep making good decisions and the ipl gets bigger and bigger and bigger are we going to see a situation where i don't know 40 percent of the world's best players all come from india if that's the case do you need the limit anymore i don't think that's quite the case now well, it could be wrong but I don't think the numbers are that high. If you ever got to the case where, you know, 40 to 50 to 60% of them are there, then when you're picking an Indian player, I actually think it makes it better because you're picking them because they're the best in the world, not because you have to. Um, But I don't see that as something now. I think it would be a very weird political decision to do. If you're just talking going from four to five players, of which you are, I think that that would be absolutely fine um, when you maybe get to 12 teams. I mean, you could do it when they get to 10 teams, but I could certainly see you doing it when you get to 12 teams. I'm not sure. It's, I'm just not sure it's something that they necessarily need to do. Um, but, you know, yeah, for me, take the limits off. That's what I want. I mean, I just want the league to be the best it can be. Um, and at the moment, it's, you know, it's not um, for for very obvious reasons. Um, and uh, I, I think that would be great. But that, that's a really good question. Thanks, Basil. Yeah, no problem. Okay. Are you? Uh, so, Jared, uh, firstly, I, I heard your or I saw your podcast with Jim Jeffries and I did not know that. Well, he didn't know about cricket that much. Let's be honest. Let's not piss in his pocket. He did say bowls instead of balls. Yeah. <laughs> balls. Yeah. It was, it was really funny. Uh, so, my question is again uh, matching the theme of the discussion today. And I was thinking about leg spinners mm-hmm. in, in Test cricket. Where are they? They're such a hot commodity in T20 cricket and suddenly in Test cricket. I, I could not. Like, why is Adil Rashid not considered by England? Why is UZJ not considered quite again? What is this uh, obsession of fast spinners and, you know, the whole debate that's been going on, you know, slow leg spinners, fast leg spinners? Can you shed some light on that? Yeah, uh, I, I can't give you a great answer why leg spinners aren't doing well. I think part of the reason is that maybe, I think leg spinning was fading before T20 brought it back. And perhaps if you're a young leg spinner now, you would be more obvious to go towards T20 cricket. Uh, and that might play a part in it. Obviously, Yashi Shah was a very good bowler. Imran Tahir probably didn't get the run that he deserved in South Africa or didn't get the treatment he deserved maybe at times because they just didn't quite understand how to best use him. 
Tabre Shamsi, I've said this before. Um, I think he has a great first class record. Uh, I know he's a leg spinner, but you know, another wrist spinner. Um, I'm not sure outside of Rashid Khan, though, how many of the leg spinners out there I would think would be very good in for, in test cricket. Uh, I think that a lot of them are almost specifically uh, T20 bowlers now. Uh, your second one is it's just about there is, I think there was a study done, I think in English cricket, but it's been spread around the world. And it might've been, there might've been ones done in Western Australia and sorry, in Australia and India as well. Basically it says there is an optimum speed to bowl spin. And that speed is much closer to what Rashid Khan is doing and a long way away from what Matt Parkinson is doing. And I think within that, there is a, there is a lot of truth as a, as a, as a rule that what you really want to be able to do is be able to get the ball to deviate at a speed that people can't react to it, which is essentially what Rashid Khan does. Um, I suppose that's what Anil Kumble did when the pitch was spinning. It's what Shahid Afridi did on occasions. Uh, so I can understand all of that. But we also know that uh, spin bowling is more than that on its own. Um, that, there, you know, Nathan Lyon is a slow spinner. Um, and has been incredibly successful. I, I remember when Nathan Lyon got to uh, the Australian team, the Australian players facing him in the nets going, how is this guy going to take a wicket? He's like club cricket slow. In fact, I've bowled to international Australian players before, and they've gone, oh, my God, you're even slower than Nathan Lyon. They use that as an insult to me uh, and to Nathan Lyon, I suppose. Uh, so I think there is a bit of a feeling that slow spin doesn't work as well. I, I think that probably works if you look at all spinners ever. I don't think that works quite as much if you look at specifically individual bowlers and their individual talents. So, you know, it's a bit like saying, uh, I don't know, it's a bit like saying to a, a tennis player, um, you should always serve to someone's backhand, but then you serve to you know, Andre Agassi's backhand and uh, he keeps pinging them past you. And you're just like, well, I always serve to everyone's backhand. It's never, it's never been a problem before. And it's like, yeah, but he's an above average backhand returner. Uh, I don't know if Andre Agassi was that. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. Um, so I think um, in that particular case, uh, I think that m- there might be some thinking about it in that way. But look, it's a, it's, a, it's a very good question. And the leg spin thing is something I've been thinking about a lot um, uh, of recent times. Uh, Yashishar Shah and Rashid Khan, are they the last two respected red ball, white ball leg spinners. Cause as you said, Adil Rashid's not quite on that level. Um, and I do mean risk. I do mean leg spinners here um, rather than uh, uh, left arm wrist spinners. I, I think there's something in that, um, but maybe it's almost a question that I'd love to see where we are in five years time from that one. But thanks so much for that one. Are you? All right. Akila. Oh, uh, hello. Oh, there he is. Yeah. You kind of mentioned him before. Yasir Shah, I remember he's tested Nolds in 2016 so well. And no, I still remember it now. How did that spin play against him where now he's not considering one of the best spinners in World Cricket now? How did that spin adapt? To, how do they find his flaws? I think, I think with Yasir Shah, if you have a look at him, I, I remember when he first played, my original thought was he has such a repeatable action in le- as, in a, as a leg spinner. And I think that a lot of leg spinners don't have that. There isn't anything outside of his brain where I think he's an exceptional leg spinner. I think his brain's incredible, but he gets a little bit of spin. Um, you know, I don't think he's great at deception from a out-of-the-hand form of deception. I think he's very good at setting up batters. 
Um, but I think after a while, he he doesn't he doesn't probably have the the Shane Warne style of leg spin, and he doesn't have the Abdul Qadir style of leg spin. So he's not beating you with ripping deliveries, and he's also not beating you with incredible deception from the fingers. And I think because of those two things, I think that once you've seen a little bit of him, you can play him. I, I, I haven't looked at his record over the last couple of years, but most spinners are struggling over the last couple of years, um, as partly just because seam bowlers are getting <laughs> better pitches for themselves. Uh, I don't know if that has uh, affected uh, Yunus Khan, but I... That's Yunus Khan. Um, Yasir Shah. Yunus, it's definitely not affected Yunus Khan. He's doing fine. Um, uh, but I don't know if that's affected Yasir Shah uh, that much. But uh, it could be um, something like that. But I'd have to have a, a good look at his his record. In fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna write that down because if there's something in there, I might make a video on it. But but my guess is that he's never gonna bowl many bad balls, and he's very clever and he's very good at setting you up. I'm not sure he has what I, I always think for the the great spinners, their stock ball has to be constantly threatening. So you have to be in fear of going out to them at all times. And and I'm not sure that Yassir Shah ever had that. So he's in that level, maybe slightly below that, but still obviously a very, very talented player. Um, but I'll have to go and look at his record now because now you've got me all, all fascinated. If this was like, if I had my arm properly, I probably would have just looked it up live on air, but I can't do that. But thank you very much for your question. All right, last three. Dev Dut. Dev Dut or Dev Dut? Is it Dev Dut? Yeah, it's Dave that if you yeah, if you cool. What's your question? So I wanted to ask you whether the future of cricket in general. Do you think it's going to be more franchisey cricket or international cricket? And if international cricket, I, by by that I mean, do you think a same country playing two formats at one time? And mm-hmm. interesting talks revenue generation for cricket boards. Uh, do you think if they take control of the production of uh, their matches? And just sell their broadcast rights, as in with respect to international cricket. Do you think that is something that is foreseeable? What making the production themselves? Yes. Yeah. So the BCCI have already done that, haven't they? I've got a feeling Cricket Australia have thought about doing it as well. I'm trying to think, does Ireland do it? Uh, Pakistan, Pakistan tried doing it because Pakistan was streaming on YouTube for free. Uh, I don't think streaming on YouTube for free means they're doing the production. So the production is obviously slightly different. But but yeah, uh, they might have been. I'm trying to remember Pakistan. Look, uh, I think teams will do it. I think there's still a lot to be... The thing is that there's a lot to be gained from broadcasters at the moment. Whether there'll be a lot to be gained from broadcasters in five or ten years, I don't know. Eventually, everything will be on Cricket TV. My, my guess is if they ever get Cricket TV off off the ground and, oh my God, they've owned that you know, own that domain for a long time. If they get Cricket TV up and running, I would think that Cricket TV through the ICC, so it's the ICC who own that, would ask if it's possible to just do all the production for around the world and then, you know, uh, uh, charge a very small fee for that but allow then obviously them to have control of the production and then that production to be sent to all the different broadcasters. So if Sky still want to use their own commentators, they can, but they'll be using Cricket um, TV's camera crews and and, and produ- producers and all that sort of thing. I think that's a possibility going forward. I think a lot of sports might think about that because it's a way of controlling the message even more. I mean, uh, TV boards, uh, the TV companies and cricket boards are already kind of hand-in-hand in a lot of different situations, but they're not always hand-in-hand, as Channel 7 and Cricket Australia will tell you at the moment. Um, 
and so you know and uh, certainly there is there's always an element of friction between the two if you can cut out that and just give them the 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 product or as we go forward to streaming you don't need the tv companies as much anymore uh, that's also a possibility but yeah, i think there's going to be big changes in the way cricket is broadcast in the way cricket is consumed in the next 5 to 10 years amazon obviously uh, who have amazon got to deal with is it the west indies and south africa certainly south africa haven't they or is it new zealand god it's one one of the teams already i did not read about that so i don't know much about that oh okay yeah i can't remember mate but it's one of them so Obviously, Netflix are going to get involved with cricket. Um, companies like Hulu and Stan in Australia, um, all probably going to get you know involved in cricket in various ways going forward. Um, so I think a lot of things will change. And I know that there have certainly been conversations with within cricket boards where they've gone, why are we letting this company uh, frame our product? So Cricket Australia were so upset with the way that Channel 9 were pushing cricket. They kept saying... It's just white men saying bad dad jokes. You're not selling our game. You're not pushing our game forward. You're not finding us new markets. They, cricket, there are a lot of people at Cricket Australia at that time who believed that Channel 9 were part of the reason that cricket was slipping in Australia before the Big Bash. Um, and they loved Channel 10 because of that, although didn't love Channel 10 enough to give them the rights. So, yeah, there's certainly a situation now where those things are starting to change. Um uh, it'd be really interesting to see where it goes. Um, remember Tom Harrison before the, but I'm pretty sure Tom Harrison said this actually. For, so for any of you people out there who um, don't like what he's been saying about the 100, I'm pretty sure he made a big claim that cricket didn't need to be on free-to-air TV anymore, which was probably, he was probably, cut, I, I know what he was meaning, but what he was, you know, he's probably a couple of years ahead of his time on that particular, uh, when he said that. But essentially, yeah, I think we're we're at a point where we're not far away from, it. you know, <laughs> Putting cricket on TV is not going to be the biggest moneymaker going ahead. It's going to be streaming. And so that changes everything. And that gives every, you know, basically cricket t- cricket.tv wants to be NBA.tv and MLB.tv and Manchester United.tv or whatever, wherever else you have. That's what cricket.tv wants to be. That's why the ICC want to be involved in it. Um, so I think that will change everything. But thanks so much for your question. Uh, who have we got next? I've got two people left. Yeah, yeah. Hi, Jared. I wanted to know about how you make your videos, like how you make graphs and the charts in the video and how do you find the data for it? Like if you wanted to make a video about James Anderson and his stats, so like how do you find data about about James Anderson and uh, him bowling all these overs and like how do you get that data? Okay, well, my videos are made in so many different ways. There's so many people who say, oh, I just... You know, I want the software that you use to make your videos. I use Canva, Data Wrapper, Flourish, Doodly, Toonly, Final Cut Pro, Screen Grabs, apps. Um, there's so many. They're not one kind of video. Um, they are a, a, a video maker. Uh, so I use all those different things. As far as the information goes, look, I have so many outlets. Uh, Stats Guru is obviously, you know, great. Uh, Crick Sheets, Andrew Sampson's um, database uh, I use as well. I have, you know, relationships with people in cricket. Um, I have my own personal databases. Um, but Crick Sheet is basically 
know, kind of has everything that you need other than ball tracking data, really. Um, absolutely brilliant website. So that's probably the best way to go. But yeah, and then and then I suppose the ideas more just come from people kept talking about the second innings thing with Jimmy Anderson, for instance. And it was mentioned on the TV and, you know, we were commentating on the radio and, and we were mentioning it there. And it made sense. I mean, I mean George Dobell said it to me, uh, you know, I can't remember if we were on Polite Inquiries or somewhere else, but he said, it makes sense, doesn't it? He's old and slows down the second innings. And I completely bought it. And then I was just like, I can't think of that ever being a thing before. It doesn't mean it wasn't. But So I went off and looked and we don't have a lot of data on old test match bowlers. You know, I probably could have done a similar thing on first class bowlers as well. Um, but I certainly couldn't see anything on older bowlers that showed that they struggle in the second innings of test matches. So, yeah, you you kind of start with that idea, and then I started thinking, was there any other time that people kind of doubted Jimmy Anderson because of his age? And I kind of thought, well, that kind of happens a lot recently, but it actually happened when he was a bit younger. So then I go back into that, and that was, again, one that was something that I believed, went back and had a look, and, uh, yeah, it turns out that uh, I was wrong there as well. It was really uh, quite interesting. So... Yeah, as far as making the videos, I use so many different programs, it's almost impossible. Um, and as far as uh, the stats, Crick Sheet is a great place to start, but I have you know a million different outlets uh, that I go with. All right, last one, which is Kyle. Kyle, you're on the air. Uh, so I have a short question or a long question, but since I'm the uh, last one, I'll go with the short question. I looked up the New Zealand-Bangladesh results and was surprised that the New Zealand team was mostly people that had it been a team recently compared to their World Cup team. And obviously, some of that is COVID-related, some of it's IPL-related. But do you see that as a trend going forward of teams that she's sending their B teams to away tournaments or away series that can be used as a place to blood in new players? Or is that just going to be, is that going to be an increasing trend? Or is that more a COVID-specific thing? And hopefully when eventually COVID dies down, eventually we'll see it. I think it's certainly more COVID related, but it's something that you see in the sort of the, if a team thinks it's a lower, lower stakes tournament, I think you'll see they'll send sort of other places. So if you're New Zealand, you don't really want to lose against Australia. You want to try and win those games. And in fact, against all the big three, you want to win because you want them to tour you more often. If New Zealand is playing the West Indies or if New Zealand is playing Bangladesh or Sri Lanka, they might be thinking, if, if we lose to them, it's probably not going to make back page paper that we've been that we've lost to them. We have the ability to, I mean, New Zealand's been very good at planning. So I would say that they they also went, well, let's blood a bunch of young players. Let's get them used to conditions that, I mean, the Bangladesh conditions over the last little while have been ridiculously tough, haven't they? So not a bad series to send a bunch of young players on to see what happens. Uh, what... So I think it's probably a combination of the lower state series um, and COVID. But I think that where possible, there's so much cricket played now that you really want to start to see if these younger players are of the level that you need them to be. And I think that when you had fewer series played, you probably picked your maximum strength team as much as possible. Now that there are so many cricket matches played, I think you'll probably see teams just be like, let's give this person a go and see how they go. Whereas, so if you go back, traditionally, that would be done in the, like, the last game of a series at home and sometimes away where you would just 
pick a bunch of youngsters. But one, we I suppose what we've learned in cricket is a one-game sample size doesn't mean anything. Um, and so, you know, uh, throwing Chris Wokes in for one test at the Oval um, at the end of a series, probably not telling England as much as they wanted to learn about uh Chris Wokes, and we've seen that a lot in limited overs cricket as well. Whereas if you can send a bunch of younger players on a, on a series, A, you probably work out who your leaders are in that group, and you have the ability to see them uh, in a v- variety of um, conditions. So by variety of conditions, I don't mean different pitches. I mean, you know, you've got number four. One day he's in on the third ball of the game, and the next day he has to come in the 40th over. You know, another day he comes in on a hat trick in the middle overs. Uh, you know, what, however these things work. So I, I think that we will see more of this. I think England, Australia, and India have gone all in on the on the idea of platooning players. Especially, it started with fast bowlers, but I think it's now starting to happen with their entire squads. Um, and uh, I think you will see other teams go towards that as well. Just because you don't, you know, it, it, if it doesn't matter to you from a qualifying for the World Cup perspective or warming up for a World Cup perspective or something like that. Do you really want to send Trent Bolt um, to Bangladesh or even, you know, if he's going to the IPL afterwards, is there even any point in him going to Bangladesh in that particular um, situation? So You don't think that any of the players in the World Cup squad not playing in this is going to affect their preparation or is like... I would have assumed they would have asked them. I don't think that's something that they would have just done off their own bat. Could be completely wrong there. I'm just guessing. But I don't think they would have rested anyone who didn't want to be rested. I would assume that they said to these guys, we're thinking of sending a more um, younger squad. Does anyone want time off? You you guys are in the IPL. I'm I'm assuming you're going to be happy because you're going to be off playing there. But for the guys who are not in the IPL, who we still expect to play, are you interested in playing? Um, I'd be very, very surprised if they just said to someone who wanted to play in Asia before the World Cup, no, you're not playing there. Thank you very much for that question. Also, Kyle sent a uh, oh, a few of you have written in uh, a couple of things in the comments. Kyle said West Indies, New Zealand, and Zimbabwe are available on Watch ESPN in the US. Yeah, I, my, maybe it's South Africa. I can't remember. I, I know that a cricket board had sold to Amazon, uh, Amazon, uh, and was looking about that in the future. Uh, West Indies and CPL are free on YouTube. Says Basker. Yeah, that's true. Kyron Powell was the baseballer whose name I forgot earlier. Uh, he also asked about Mitch Swepson. Very interesting. He hasn't played Test cricket yet. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, Jimmy Neesham apparently wanted to play for New Zealand, but they told him not to travel due to COVID, which is also very, very uh, fair enough. Um, I can understand why uh, teams might do that. Thank you, everyone, for your questions today. Uh, thanks to the Patreons for their questions. Thank you to everyone else. A really good green room. I've gone, I've gone very long. I've gone extremely long. Uh, thank you for everyone for their messages on my videos and the podcast, the ones that you're enjoying. We've got some good podcasts coming up. We'll be doing a bunch of IPL and then World T20 stuff on the videos. If you can support us on Patreon, uh, as I said, the more support we have on Patreon, the more videos we can make. And eventually we can bring our third day of podcast in a week, hopefully. And if you're listening to this on YouTube or on Red Inca, if you want to get involved, we usually tweet out and we do Instagram stories of when uh, we are going live on Spotify Green Room. But if you follow me on Spotify Green Room, you should get an alert. But thank you to everyone. My best wishes to Pakistan cricket with what they are currently going through. Hopefully that does not cause further problems for them going forward. And hopefully uh, everyone uh, gets to play. Imagine if we just played the matches that we were trying to play. Yeah, although we're already trying to play too many matches, so maybe I shouldn't say that. But thank you for joining Wagon Wheel, and we'll see you very shortly.
Social Podcast Network.